Do you crave meaningful conversations with people of different backgrounds and perspectives? Do you admire certain people from afar but wish you can get to know them on a deeper level? Thankfully, we live in an incredible age where long-form conversation allows us to connect with those who inspire us beyond the often manufactured sound bites, small talk, and social media posts we are bombarded with on a daily basis. This is a podcast that seeks to provide you, our listeners, with refreshing content from a variety of inspiring guests, a place where we can truly hear their stories. I'm Karen Corrin, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hey everyone, get ready for a really informative and important episode. I sit down with Ellie Chevalis, and we talk about the importance of a healthy sex education. And the education comes first from the parents. Elisheva created a dynamic online course, which I'm currently taking, and it's really helping me understand the way that we are raised. It affects the way we view our bodies, the opposite gender, sexuality, and sex. This course that she created, it's great for anybody, but it's really intended for parents to guide and educate their children in regards to intimacy and their bodies. Now is the time that the kids are home and the internet is at their disposal. So I believe it's our duty to start those difficult and awkward conversations with our children if we haven't already and continue having these conversations. In this episode of Soul Sessions, you will discover why these conversations that we have with our children. First of all, we have to learn how to have these conversations, but why are they mandatory for the emotional and physical well-being of our children. Without further ado, I would love to introduce Elisheva Bliss. Hello, everybody. I'm here with the fabulous Elisheva Bliss. She's a licensed therapist, and she specializes mostly in sexuality and intimacy issues. I have had the pleasure of knowing Elisheva for many, many years now, even though she didn't know me. I'm like, hey, I know you. She's like, who are you? (laughs) I have been following her blog and I've been attending her workshops for college teachers for the last, you know, five or six years or so. And she is wonderful to say the least. So I'm gonna just stop talking because Ellie Shepard has so many important things to say to us right now. And I wanna talk about specifically Sex Education for Children, because this is a course that you're bringing out to the public right now. So I'm just going to shut up right now, and (laughs) I'm going to have Elisheva take the mic and explain what you do, who you are. Go for it. Okay. (laughs) Welcome to Soul Sessions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for that really enthusiastic and beautiful introduction, Karen. Yes, we have become a friendly, we've never actually met in person, but we've connected a little bit like online and through private messaging over the years. And, you know, I have so much respect and gratitude to educators, particularly in religious communities who make it their business to stay aware and current when it comes to sociocultural issues that are coming up, when it comes to the area of mental health, the psychological well-being of their students. Um, because there's just so much important crossover between, you know, education and uh, mental health and relational wellness. So it's always like a pleasure and a privilege to collaborate with with teachers like you. So thank you. Um, Yeah. So, um, okay. So in terms of what I do, so like you said, I'm a licensed psychotherapist. My degree is marriage and family therapy. So um, I really just chose that degree because it was a convenient way to become a therapist. I didn't actually know that I was going to end up with this specialty. Um, it just sort of happened. Uh, and I guess once your degree is marriage and family therapy, you end up with a lot of couples in your practice. I do see individuals as well. But at any given time, I would say probably 60, 70% of my caseload is, like you said, sexual issues. I am not a certified sex therapist. I'm much more of a marital couples therapist who ended up with this specialty in dealing with sexual issues as they arise in the intimate part of a couple's uh, of a couple's life and marriage. And there are like sort of slight differences between like how a couple's therapist would uh, integrate the issue of sexuality as opposed to a, a pure sex therapy approach. But that's a different conversation. Anyway, I just always like to be very clear about my credentials, what I, what I am and what I'm not, what I have and what I don't have. 
Um, anyway, so that's my, my day job. I, um, you know, I, I treat, you know, couples and individuals and have this, you know, sort of this accidental specialty in sexual stuff. Um, I've also written a book. Uh, it's called Find Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking. I'm not going to talk too much about that because that's more of a general narrative therapy approach to healthy thinking and healthy functioning. It is on Amazon if you want to look that up, but that's kind of like a separate conversation. Um, the way that you and I really connected was through my Nefesh blog. Um, my my, my uh, regular professional website is elishevelis.com, and I had started blogging and writing articles there. Uh, but in the last number of years, I found that in my practice, I was treating primarily orthodox individuals and couples. And I really wanted a way to be able to write about uh, culturally specific issues that, uh, that apply to the religious communities and in a way that is a little more discreet than just sort of out there. And so I found Nefesh. Nefesh is the International Association of Orthodox Therapists. It's a really terrific resource. It's a nonprofit. And um, one of the things that they do is they provide a forum for, for religious orthodox therapists to blog. I'm one of probably 30 or 40 therapists that blog on nefesh.org. And that's really when I sort of became more well-known in the Orthodox community as someone who is willing to talk about some of these things that a lot of people are not comfortable talking about. I should be clear, I'm not entirely comfortable talking about it either. Um, I just feel like it's more uncomfortable to deal with the fallout that happens when we stigmatize and tabooize, I don't think tabooize is a word, but when we don't deal with things. <laughs> um, I so, all the time, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Language is prescriptive, not descriptive. So, <laughs> um, no other way around, sorry, just whatever. Anyway, yeah. so, um, yeah, so anyway, so that's how I sort of got into this more like advocacy role rather than just like in the private four walls of my office. I really wanted to be able to spread more education and awareness um, about not just how we can deal with problems that arise in marriages, but ways that we can try to preempt it. So, um, you know, so I was, you know, working with all these lovely young couples and it's like so hard when you're dealing with really good people who have the best of intentions and they're sort of like, unintentionally hurting one another because of, to a large extent, a lack of education, like just a lack of knowledge. Um, and to some extent, it's a lack of knowledge like in the immediate premarital stage, but I really do believe, and the more years I've been involved in this work, the more passionately I feel about this, that it's really, it's not enough to just relegate this area of, of, of education, of marital, premarital, sexual education to like those hectic months before the wedding and just expect that the premarital educators like yourself are going to like clean up 20 years or so of, uh, you know, either non-education or miseducation or trauma um, or, trauma. oh my gosh. Yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, you know, and so, so that's where I ended up. So first I was writing about the problems and people were just kind of writing in and saying, wow, I thought it was just me. I didn't realize this is a thing and there are names for it and there's treatments for it. Um, so that was like really gratifying to be able to like kind of open people's eyes and open the door to the, to the possibility and the hope that they could get better. Like this is something that's dealable and treatable and it's not only them and they're not broken. Um, so that was a big deal. Then sort of like addressing the premarital education piece. I recently sent you a document that I've been sharing discreetly yeah. with certain educators, which I think is really important to integrate into like when people teach Tara Hamishbasav and Nida laws, also to teach about, you know, the, the love and the passion and the pleasure and the communication yeah. that for a marriage amazing. Um, and then I went back a little further, you know, so first we're looking at the marriage, then we're looking at the premarital education. And then I started to look at one second, this is not just a marital issue, but it's a life cycle issue, you know, because the way we relate to our bodies, to our psychosexual development, to how we engage with the opposite gender, or even the same gender when certain feelings come up, how we establish relationships and safety and attachment, um, all of that comes into how we then create a relationship with our significant other. Right? right so yeah i'm doing a lot of talking feel free to interject questions at any point so that's why you decided to prepare this course to develop a sex education course for parents because you believe that it starts way from the beginning in the beginning of the life cycle um that if parents and children don't have this education from the beginning then the problems can arise you know, right before the wedding when it, it could be sometimes a little bit too late, but I mean, it's never too late. You can always fix things, but better to, as you said, preemptively prepare people from the beginning. Um, yes. They say like an ounce of preparation is worth a pound of cure. You know, like it's so much better to be able to, you know, preempt problems than to have to tackle them once they arise. What is it? What? An ounce of preparation? What? Worth a pound? Oh, of sorry. Not preparation. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. So at what age 
should parents start talking to their kids about their body, sexuality, body safety? And what about the commonly dreaded conversation about the birds and the bees? You know, the euphemism <laughs> that people always use. Basically, when do we start teaching our kids about sex? When is it appropriate? I'm yeah. it over to you. Yeah, I love that question. It's so, so important. And I could probably just spend like another two hours straight discussing this question, but I'm going to try to like keep it trim. And yeah. what I would say is that um, it's the short answer is that it's, I, I believe people might disagree. I believe that it should not be this like one big earth shattering disclosure at some magical specific age or stage of development. Um, I really believe that this should be an ongoing dialogue. The analogy, I actually have a blog post on my nefesh.org blog. Uh, titled it was well, actually it might have been one of my first either the first, yeah you know that one it was called like talking to children about the birds and the bees and that was sort of the seed that started growing into this whole uh you know movement of, of the course um and what and so it, it we use that phrase the birds and the bees and because people are uncomfortable with the actual terms which is i understand but we do need to be able to use them in appropriate uh context mm -hmm. and um, so I, I don't love the idea. Oh, so in that article, what I mentioned is like the same way, if you want your children to lead a God-centered life, right? We're talking to a predominantly religious audience here, right? So people who want to- More traditional audience. Well, right, yeah. but religious doesn't necessarily mean halakhically observant. Religious right, means- right believe in some form of religion, right? So if you want God and religion as, and, and uh, moral ethical practice as a value in your children's life, you're not going to wait until they hit, let's say, bar bat mitzvah age and say, like, for the first time, oh, by the way, did I ever tell you about God, right? Like, <laughs> that would be that would be so silly. You know, if, if something is important, whatever the value is, whether it's God or whether it's just, let's say, being a good person or, or kindness or charity, you know, whatever it is that people want to incorporate as a central important uh, fundamental and identity value in children's lives is something that we're going to be dripping in and sprinkling into their baby food and mixing into so many of the interactions that we have with our children throughout throughout life so if if you know if, uh, even let's say our love for our children right it's like we're not going to tell them once or twice in their childhood by the way just so you know i love you right we probably tell our kids thousands of times in the course of their you know childhood and adolescence how much we love them and then more when they grow up right because right. it's just never enough and so when something is important, we reflect that in our language and the attention that we pay to something. And on the flip side, you can't not communicate, you know? So if you don't talk about something, then that, what, what that conveys is either it's not that important, it's uncomfortable and problematic for us, or I don't, I don't like that thing, right? I don't want to talk about that because it's not comfortable for me. And then they're left to their own device. Bless you. So, so the answer to the question is, there's not one specific age. It's something that we're kind of like uh, establishing a foundation, putting bricks and building on it as they get older and older, so that they understand their bodies, understand their sensations, understand their thoughts and their feelings and their desires and their urges, their temptations. So when they get that period, they're prepared. When the boy has his first erection or wet dream, like when these things happen, they're like, uh, you know, it's not like traumatic for them. It's like, oh, okay, I understand. My body's doing the thing that Hashem programmed my body to do, you know? Oh, wow. So um, would you say like, I don't know, when they, once they start talking and developing maybe like two or three years old, I should start talking to them about their body parts. I mean, I already, I say the real name for their body parts. I don't make up names for anything. You know, yeah. in the beginning we were scared like, oh my God, they're going to say these words on the bus. Um, then the other kids' parents are going to be upset with us. Like, why are you teaching your kids these words that they're going to say it all over school? But I find that actually with educating them about their proper body parts, you know, this is your penis, this is your vagina, that they'll be more comfortable with themselves. And they'll also know that God forbid, they know, they recognize which body parts are no zone for anybody. Um, so that's really important. Um, okay, so I want to segue this into something a little bit deeper. Most people don't talk to their kids about sex, sexuality, and they don't get this education at home. So you have parents who might be taking this course who didn't get this education themselves at home or at school or anything and they entered their marriages with this undeveloped, unhealthy version of sexuality. And here they are taking a course about how to teach their kids about proper, healthy, holy sexuality. What would you say to those parents? Are they equipped to take a course like this? 
if they didn't get it them like you know what i'm saying like if they don't have a healthy version themselves yeah yeah no it's such an important question and i don't know if you noticed this but on the i know you're taking the course but there, like if you click on the uh the thinkific link which i think is in it's it's on my website and it's on my instagram profile whatever if you click on it and you want to check it out the very first screen that pops up it says do you want to give your children a better education about sexuality than you had um, but you don't really know how like the assumption is that most people from our generation you know even if you were raised in the most wonderful loving educated family and presumably i'd like to hope that most parents are doing the best they can with the tools and the knowledge that they have and our communities by and i mean jewish and american and western communities in general i believe that we value education in so many other areas of life you know um but when i speak to live audiences about this and i'll say how many of you were really really satisfied with your sexuality education almost almost no hands will go up maybe one or two like people will be like oh yeah actually my mom was really good at that my dad had what to say but for the most part i think as a society we are a little bit lost and just with the explosion of the pornography industry and even like in my own lifetime you know when i was a teenager i was friendly i grew up in manhattan i had i knew there were uh non-jewish or, or jewish but not observant um kids my age like they were not having premarital sex as a matter of course that was just like not part of the culture yet as the expectation you know or they were certainly waiting till college you know um right. now right. that would be a strange thing to do unless you're abstaining for religious reasons so the world has changed the post-sexual revolution that started in the 60s i mean there's so much like sort of like socio-cultural stuff that you can notice about that but i think the point we don't we, you know we're kind of trying to keep up with the sexuality revolution the, the technology revolution which i know we'll get to soon um and so just staying ahead of the the knowledge curve is the first place to start and the reason i started this course which is called sacred not secret a religious family's guide to healthy holy sexuality education is because originally uh, you know i never really got into giving parenting classes you know i'm crazy about my kids um but i i never viewed myself as like a parent and i try to be a really good parent but i never viewed myself as a parenting expert um, but when it came to talking about um, marriage and sexuality in front of audiences and writing about it, invariably the, the Q&A section would always come back to people saying like, I feel so deficient in what I got and how I had to learn this stuff or how I'm still struggling with it at this point in my life. How can I protect my children from these problems? And this is what it always would come back, back to. And my answer in that Q&A was like, that's such an important question, but like, you know, the program is over now. So what am I supposed to do? And so right. every time I, I I would drive home and I would think, you know what, at some point I want to create a curriculum so that people really have, I don't have to like kind of stuff it into that last few minutes of the Q&A at the end of the talk on marriage and sex. It would be something that people could really sink their teeth into learning. So a couple of people have asked me, I'm dripping out the courses, like there's like one lesson a week. And someone asked me, a few people asked me, they're like, you know, we're enjoying the content, but we noticed that like so many of the first lessons have nothing to do with kids. They're more about like parent feelings, parent paradigms, parent like experiences like when are we going to get to the part where you talk to kids and i'm like we're going to get there the majority of the modules are scripts and and information about the kids but we always start with ourselves and so you know you know in order to teach we need to know right if i can't teach you how to speak chinese if i don't know any words in chinese right so really big part of life it's part of our identities it's part of our relationships it's part of how we relate, relate to our bodies and interpret our bodies and our thoughts um, and certainly our relationships and marriage so what I would tell people who who don't feel equipped to have these conversations is that's okay get educated you know and if you don't you know sometimes people are like well yeah she has a course of course she wants people to get educated I'm like you know what I don't have a monopoly on this material I've done my research from from material that's already there um, right. Right. there are there are you know a couple of religious books there are there's tons part, part of the reason I wanted to do a course is because most of the material that's out there is written from a more liberal vantage point um, yeah. which is tends to be very academically well-researched, very, uh, very biologically accurate, but it doesn't always honor the values and, um, and traditions and messages that religious families want to convey. And then people feel like at odds with the material and they're not really sure how to interpret and adapt for their own faith-based families. And so, you know, I think is relatively unique about my course is that it tries to do that, but other people can do that as well. You don't need to specifically take any one course or one book. There's tons of, of free uh, resources out there that you can, you know, adapt. Sure. Yeah. So would you say your course will be beneficial to couples who are now currently struggling with intimacy? So I guess, well, do they have kids? <laughs> I'll tell you like this. Um, yeah. When I'm working with a couple or an individual, sometimes I work with individual women who are struggling with low libido or sexual problems. Um, very often, part of my intervention, like part of my treatment plan for these individual, these couples or individuals, 
skills is I will give them books on how to talk to children about sexuality, not because they are going to have their own children, which they might do, but because they need to re-educate their own inner child. And from, from a therapeutic point, so if you're looking at the course and saying like, oh, you know, this is going to be a course that'll teach me about my marriage. No, I would not sign up for the course with that in, in mind. But if you're saying like, hey, you know, I wish that I, my, as a child, as a teenager, I had internalized and been given healthier, holier, more understandable and relatable messages and vocabulary about my body and my sexual development. And this would be the, sort of a way to like, kind of like process it retrospectively, retroactively. I would say that's a really great thing to do. Wow. But it is, it is, you know, on the surface level, really geared more towards parents or for let's say people like I know there are sometimes really ambitious people who read parenting books even before they have kids because they just want to like get right. in that mindset of like you know knowing what they want to say and do even before they have children which is always really cool I That's actually cool. got a few messages from people with like my baby is only one year old but I really want to know would this be relevant for me and I'm like listen if you're reading parenting books and you have a one-year-old child then this would be the equivalent of doing that you're not necessarily so much educating although that having been said I think that just being in touch with how important skin to skin contact is and creating a paradigm for even little babies, that touch is a source of comfort and security and pleasure and connection. Like that's, I mean, newborns get skin to skin contact. So yeah. For sure. You know, it just reminds me, I get, I get a lot, I got a lot of mixed messages growing up where on one hand it was taught kind of like, you know, parents shouldn't really show their affection in front of the kids because that's private. That's for the bedroom, you know, like children yes. shouldn't really know when their parents are available to each other or when they're not. But then on the other hand, you also get this message like, no, you have to show affection. You have to show hugs and kisses and cuddles in front of your kids because that's very, very healthy for them to see. So like, you know, when someone grows up, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah. Mixed messages, like what's the correct way to be with your spouse in front of your children? What's healthy for them to see? Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. And, and yeah, people get really confused about this. So a couple of things, you know, there's, there's the religious sensitivity that people have of like, you know, not not wanting for religious reasons. And so I'm not a religious authority and people can consult with their own, you know, religious authority sources. I have, however, discussed this with people who are Torah scholars. Um, and, and depending on, you know, which stripe of community they're affiliated with will answer accordingly. But I'm going to answer from a mental health perspective, but a mental health perspective, perspective of someone who does value religious sensitivity. Okay. So um, there are gradations of affection, right? So if you say, hey, how's it going to someone? That's, that's a sign of affection because you're expressing an interest in them, right? If you say, I love you, I think you're gorgeous, right? That's also a sign of affection, but that's much more intimate, right? And there's a whole, a whole like spectrum in between. So the same way there are gradations of verbal uh, closeness and affection and propriety, I think it's the same thing with physical. So I think that it is really beneficial and healthy for children to see and know with security that their parents really like each other. Um, we, you know, people say don't ever fight in front of your kids, but presumably your kids will occasionally see the tension between you, you know, even if you're the most like loving, happy, you know, getting along kind of couple, sometimes they're going to know that mom and dad might be like in a weird place about something. So if they're going to end up seeing you sometimes not get along or disagree, like let them at least see when you smile or wink or rub each other's back or hug. Um, you know, so there's affection, which I think is really wonderful for children to see. Um, and then there's sort of like erotic touch or more sexual tone touch, which I think would be less appropriate to see, right. you know, for children to see, for you know, sure. so, but that's, you know, just one person's opinion, you know, so some children might grow up and see their, their parents kiss on the lips and think like, oh, that's something married people do. Other couples might be horrified at that thought and be like, no, 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 you know, your, your kid could see you kiss on the cheek, like to say goodbye for the day, but not on the lips. And other people would say, no, no kissing at all in front of the kids. You know, it, it's really pretty subjective. Um, I think it's very comfortable Yes, yeah, sorry. sorry. No, no, tell me the story. I want you to tell me the story. No, I was just going to share an anecdote. Yeah, no, it was just an anecdote that happened a number of years ago. I was working with this adorable young couple, and um, they were having this argument about uh, how the wife wished that her husband would be more affectionate with her in public, and he was under the impression that you're not supposed to do that for religious reasons. And in fact, there is there is a source in the Shulchan Aruch that implies that um, in Evan Hazar. And so 
Um, but this couple really, she really needed it. And, um, and it wasn't so clear to me that that was, you know, that it was so black and white. So I asked the guy, I said, is this a religious thing or a personal thing? And, um, and they've given me permission to share the story. Obviously some details are changed. Um, but he said, no, it's completely religious. I'm crazy about my wife. You know, I just, you know, my understanding is that religiously we're not supposed to do this. I said, give me a rabbi that I can discuss this with and get back to you about what you should do. And he gave me the name of a very serious Tommy Chacham who actually told me I could use his name, but I tend to be like super nervous about people's privacy. So I'm not going to say. Um, and he said, and I spoke to this rabbi about it, and he said, tell this couple that when I go out around my yeshiva in front of my talmidim, my single adult male talmidim, I hold my wife's hand because I want them to know how important it is to make sure that your wife feels taken care of and protected, you know, in front of other people, especially. Wow. And this was an amazing breakthrough. And this was a couple that was having trouble in their sexual relationship. And once he was able to, like, if they were out, he could go put his arm around her. Now, this rabbi also said, if I were in Benebrock or Borough Park, I might not do that. You know, you have to be respectful of the community where you are. If that's not a communal norm, you don't want to make people uncomfortable. Um, but uh, but the, the rabbi wasn't there and this couple wasn't there. And so they were in a place where that was more normative. And so this is just sort of an example of where like the Torah is which means that the ways of, of, of God's Torah are ways of, of sweetness and pleasantness, and they can be um, applied and interpreted by, uh, by competent uh, scholars um, to, to the situation. And um, yeah. Wow. Thank you for bringing that up because, you know, as a college teacher, you're also trained to tell kalot in a way that like it's nobody's business when you and your husband are available to each other and when you're not like other people shouldn't know when you're nida or not so bringing bringing this anecdote this perspective is actually like it shows there's a lot of nuance to it it's not yes. like black and white where like on one hand no you don't want to know you want you don't want everyone to know when you're together and when you're not but if you need a hug from your spouse with the proper guidance and perspectives that could be done. It depends on the couple, right? It depends on the couple. It depends on the emotional needs of the couple. And it also depends on the context. Like I think people need to also remember that they can rely on their common sense. So for example, I had this one couple that was telling me they were at a wedding and the guy needed to hand his wife and he went to the coat check and he took, he took his wife's coat, but he couldn't hand it to her. So he like in the middle of this whole wedding, dropped her coat on the floor and she had to pick it up. And it was just like, I don't know. <laughs> it's right, like, right. There's got to be a more subtle way to deal with that moment, you know. I'm not, you just not made it awesome. life, but like, it's not right. the same thing as saying, "Hey guys, I'm going to the mikvah tonight." You know, it, it's sort of like you know, kind of figure out ways to be discreet within reason, and then you know, kind of adapt with with common sense. So you know, we're kind of getting into the realm of like the religious sensibilities and the mental health, the relational side of it, which is always an interesting space to be in as, you know, you're, you're a religious educator. So you're coming more with the halachic hashgafic angle, which means like the Jewish law and perspective. And I'm coming more from the mental health perspective, but you appreciate mental health. And I, you know, so value and centralize uh, Torah. So it, that's why these conversations are so important. Yeah, sure. And I also noticed on the other spectrum, like you, you were talking about like a healthy dose of affection is important for children to see that. Yeah. On the other hand, when a child doesn't see their parents ever kiss or cuddle or even like growing up in a household, like if something came up on TV and the parents were like, shut it off. Ew, no, no, you can't watch that. Most people I, most people I know in my community, they grew up with that you know, like the avoidance. Yeah. And even like not necessarily religious, just like a traditional modern home where like, you know, they had TVs, they had musical lyrics, but the sex scene came on or something. It's supposed shut that up. It's bad. Oh my gosh. Or like they never saw their parents cuddle or kiss. And if they did, it's like, ew, mom, dad, like, what are you doing? Yuck. So I feel like that's not healthy either. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so in, in yeah. yeah, no, so, so one of the things I talk about, this is like a made up term, but I, I like the way it kind of encapsulates it. I call it Goldilocks, Goldilocks sexuality, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, like everything else, it requires balance. And we live in such sexually confusing times where, like I said, there's this proliferation of, you know, things like pornography, Hollywood culture is getting more and more, you know, sort of like promiscuous. And, um, you know, on the other hand, there's like a lot of religious extremism, the likes of which I don't really think we've seen before. Um, you know, the way that a lot of the school systems hyper focus on, you know, covering up and avoiding and don't look and don't wear and don't, 
you know, it's, it just, there's a lot of negativity and a lot of confusion. And I think like, it's funny. I was talking to a teenager recently. She's like, I learned all my curse words from my parents' reaction when they came up. It was like, you know, like covering ears. Like, like that's how she learned the curse words. Cause it was like her parents freaking out every time. Um, you know, so I, I think that this again highlights the importance of oh so I call it Goldilocks uh, sexuality because like the Goldilocks story things are like oh this is too hot this is too cold this is just right you know and yeah, so um, sometimes we saw that that video so yeah. I, I think that like what we're trying to do is we're trying to not create this like phobia or avoidance of like teaching people that like anything sexual is ew yeah plus not not appropriate not okay like I I can't even tell you I've lost track of how many couples, specifically women, it tends to be the women, walk into religious marriage um, with the feeling of like very often like their husbands will want to give them a kiss. Like if they say they weren't physically, uh, you know, intimate at all at, in any way, like if they weren't so involved physically before they got married and they thought that kissing on the mouth was not like a, something for religious people to do. Like they just couldn't imagine that that was, that wasn't dirty. Um, this has not happened once or twice. And then what happens is the, the newly, the new bride is horrified. The new, the new groom is feeling terribly ashamed because now he starts second guessing or questioning, or at least he feels rejected because like, why does my wife want to kiss me? Like, that's strange. Um, and, and there's all this like confusion and uh, misunderstanding. There's hyposexuality where people are, feel like they're repressed in their ability to develop a feeling, a crush, and a, a desire, <laughs> you know, which desire is like one of the most beautiful parts of what a marriage can be. And then there's hypersexuality where because people have like sort of repressed the healthy version of sexuality, they sometimes go looking for it on the internet or, you know, in, in, in uh, more other erotic uh, entertainment or literature that's not, that doesn't represent the um, emotionally intimate side of it or the healthy side of what a relationship could be. For and sure. yeah. Elishaba, you know, you brought up this couple right now that, you know, they were Shomer Nagia, they never explored physical intimacy before marriage and the girl had this like aversion to kissing in a sort of way. But I find not only as a college teacher, but also speaking with many young girls, I find this problem of like, oh no, like I don't want it. I find it amongst religious people, but also amongst non-religious people. Um, I've, yeah. had, I've had kalas and I have, you know, women who've been married for many, many years who aren't religious, who grew yeah. up in a home with, you know, sexually explicit, Not music, right? Like yeah. dance, dancing, going to clubs, like being very, very involved with the secular world and in their marriages, they're not sexual. So I don't, I don't think it's a religious problem per se, because I find it with the religious girls and I find it with the non-observing girls where it's this more hypo sexuality. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. What's the common denominator between like these two groups when like they grew up differently, but in the end, they both maybe don't desire sex and they're scared of desire with their husbands. Like what yeah. is it? What's the problem with that? Okay. So yeah. So I happen to give that example just because that was, that example was one where the, the person had like, no, uh, like, oh, no awareness that kissing is something that they could do as a religious couple. But you're right, you know, we don't have a monopoly on sexual problems. And the concept of, you know, sexology and sex therapy is something that is really um, becoming much more uh, widespread and popularized and researched, you know, far beyond religious communities. So I think that, you know, I've read this idea that I think this is so interesting, that the opposite of one extreme is often the other extreme. So let's take, for example, let's say feminism, right? Um, I don't want to get into the politics of feminism, just using the model as an example, right? So the first wave of feminism was like, hey, you know, there's a lot of women who are feeling oppressed. They don't have the right to own property or vote or get out of abusive marriages. You know, we need to empower women to be able to take better care of themselves, right? So that was like sort of a moderate wave of like being able to help get women rights that you know that are were important for society right but then you know you follow the next few decades of feminism and all of a sudden you have women march marching down washington with you know genital hats on and it's like one second that feels just as debasing to women as you know pre-feminist you know yeah uh you know and and you know they're women who celebrate their feminism by, you know, insisting on being able to appear topless so that people can ogle them, like what, you know, so sometimes when you take one extreme and then you like push far, far to the opposite extreme, what you end up with is a, a very similar type of problem. So for example, um, another example would be, let's say food, right? Someone who's, whose parents always push them to diet 
right? Versus someone whose parents are always like, eat, finish everything on your plate. You have to make sure to eat. Don't you know there are children starving in Africa, right? So both of those messages are opposite. One is like, you better diet, you better be thinner or whatever, which is obviously super unhealthy. And the other one is like pressure to make sure to eat, eat, eat. Both of those people are likely to develop a complicated relationship to food. Because again, it's, it's two opposite sides of, a, of the same thing. It's an unhealthy um, exposure and an immersion in something having to do with food. So if we take it back to sex, right? If we have a strong repression message, either from the home or from the society or from the institutions, wherever it's coming from, I'm not into finger pointing because I'm not like so interested in blaming. I really just want to fix the problems. But, you know, if a person was, you know, somehow internalized the messages like, ew, that's gross, that's bad, that's inappropriate, that's dirty, right? Um, whether it's from a religious vantage point or from, you know, just like you said, that prudish culturally, message. Yeah. Culturally, right? So then they're going to feel like, ew, yuck, I don't want to like, that's, that's going to be taking advantage of. Like I have a whole lesson that talks about how when we so focus on like sexual danger and grooming and molestation, like, and we don't ever teach children about, about positive, passionate sexuality, of course, they're going to establish a fear, uh, you know, uh, like different phobias, erotophobia, genophobia, things like that. On the, on the flip side, when you have people that are exposed to a hypersexual culture, let's say Hollywood culture, pornography, um, where everywhere you turn, there are billboards of scantily clad people making out and that aren't that aren't really what normal human bodies look like right that aren't really what new, normal human relationships look like right so that's a bombardment that would be let's say the equivalent of people being like force fed too much food right so too much sex that's not holy and wholesome and, and intimate and related and grounded in like something other than physical attraction right so either way people are sort of like surrounded by a lot of unhealthy sexual messages and that's why i'm really encouraging parents and families to try to create new paradigms for how we talk about um bodies thoughts feelings um you know relationships uh and in, in a more moderate balanced wholesome way because as we know uh, i actually just posted this today on on instagram um, you know, sexual experience can be either the source of the most passionate, pleasurable interpersonal interactions, and it can also be the source of the deepest trauma, you know, and, and the difference is in terms of like the meaning and the, and the context and the, and the relationships involved. And we can invest so much in our children's future by giving them the tools and the knowledge and the vocabulary and the confidence and the way to relate to their bodies and to other people and the boundaries and the, you know, and the ability to like reach outside themselves so that they know what they're looking for and they know how to channel this energy and when to rein it in and when to allow it outward, you know? Wow. Everything you're saying right now is also showing that like, it's also never too late. If you didn't for grow sure. up with um, healthy, a healthy paradigm of sexuality, whether it was the hypo that like, ew, oh, it's not good, or like you were exposed to it nonstop and you had a promiscuous past and, you know, in hookup culture. I'm feeling very relieved right now because this course is showing that like, it's never too late. You can, it's never too late to work on yourself and to build a better future, not just for your kids, but for yourself. You know, um, I think this is, imperative for every like young adult who's not even married yet honestly to prepare themselves for, sure. for what lies ahead in a marriage like it's not what you see in hollywood culture it's not what you see in the magazines and like all these celeb couples like hot or not you know like it's much much deeper than that and that brings me to my next question so i recently just discovered tiktok i don't know if you know about this app and <laughs> my husband's like karen like you're obsessing over this app. I'm like, it's like a whole new world. Like, oh my gosh. And seeing like girls as young as six years old on this app. So for those listening who don't know what TikTok is, it's basically this like musical lyric dance app where people make videos, dance and music videos. And it's not just basic dance and music videos there to like sexually explicit um songs and like dance moves i'm like doing the dance right now to <laughs> other like tiktok celebrities so what's the problem i i think a lot of young children specifically more girls are going on this app to learn about what's hip and what's cool and what's sexual what's sexy and i don't know what do you think about this TikTok app, should parents allow their kids to go on it, even though all their friends are on it? I mean, there's girls, again, as young as like six. Oh, yeah. Um, 
what should their parents, what should parents do with this new app going on? You know, deciding between what's cool and what's hip and what your friends are doing and then what's right. I don't know. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an issue. So I'm, I'm not super knowledgeable about TikTok. My understanding is that it is a social media app similar to Instagram or Snapchat um, that is utilized, like you said, primarily for music and dancing. It's not so much, I think the, pre, the precursors of this app were things like Musical.ly and Dub Smash um, yeah. that were similar ideas, you know, using popular music, like you said, a lot of which has very explicit lyrics and very suggestive dance moves. Yeah. And um, it's not so much about what the app itself is as much as the way that the users, like the demographic, like you said, very younger and younger kids are getting involved with it. Um, without, without so much parental supervision or with a lot of parental permissiveness in terms of what they're exposed to and what they're going to be, uh, you know, how they're going to be presenting themselves. Um, and the sort of the culture, the social culture of what is going on on this app, because like with other social media apps, they can private message one another and they can get in touch with each other. And they like, and it, these things just develop like a very um, hyperbolic quality about them. People just like, it, it takes off like wildfire, you know, becomes so yeah. trendy, become like a celebrity overnight. And people are not psychologically equipped to deal with the amount of stimulation, social and interpersonal stimulation that, that's manufactured in this virtual way. By the so way, get famous is a hashtag yeah. on TikTok. What famous? Get famous. Get famous. famous. Right, right. Viral. We all know how 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 good famous tends to be for people's mental health, right? We all know how happy and healthy people at the most famous echelon of society tend to be. Exactly. Um, you know, so I, I think what um I, I think it's not so much a TikTok issue per se. TikTok is like the most recent recent presentation of the issue of um, technology awareness for, on the part of parents and exposure and peer pressure culture. And so I think um, it's just another permutation of this like age-old parental dilemma, and that's becoming more and more uh, challenging as the years go by for our generation of parenting. Which is, to what extent do I need to take into consideration what the every everyone else is doing, right? Because it's really, really hard to be the only parent in the class that fill in the blank. And I remember thinking like, oh, when my kids were younger, my kids are older, but when they were little, when they would say, oh, we're the only ones in the class who aren't allowed to, whatever. I was like, you know what, I'm gonna find out. And very often they really were the only one in the class who wasn't allowed to. And we had to like, kind of like adapt and adjust accordingly because you don't want to create a situation where your children are completely like resentful or sneaking around or rebellious, God forbid. So it's a very, very delicate balance in terms of like understanding your child's social needs, understanding, understanding your child's social culture um, and then you know I think like TikTok if I'm not mistaken it might be mixing it up with a different one of these like Snapchat kind of things but I think they were actually um, dealing with a lawsuit a year or two ago or at some point because parents were like so upset by like the damaging situations that kids were finding themselves in and so they tried to create these like parent filters and controls but they're so easy to bypass the kids are so ahead of us in terms of like this stuff so my feeling in general about children and exposure and you know the inoculation versus insulation is that we don't really have the luxury of insulation in our generation. You know, even if a home is going to say like, oh, well, we don't allow our kids A, B, C, or D, and they're totally sheltered, it's not true because all they need to do is like spend one afternoon at a friend's house and all that, you know, very uh, deliberately curated innocence has gone out the window, right? Uh, um, and so, and, and, and it's like almost impossible to protect children from this, which I don't even know if that's an ideal because eventually they're going to have to integrate, you know, knowledge. So education seems to be the best way to go here. Um, definitely being in touch with kids and um, trying to, again, these multiple conversations and layers and pointing things out when you see um, uh, music lyrics that are that just feel really disrespectful to either sex or to humanity in general, discuss that with your children. Like, you know, I really don't think that's a nice song. Can you, can you think about why that might be? Or, you know, when, when people are dancing in a very suggestive way, you know, sort of say like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would want people to see me doing that in public. You know, I feel like, you know, it's really fun to dance and enjoy your body and feel beautiful in your body but I don't know I feel like it might not be so safe for for people to be doing that in public or for young children to be doing that in front of other people because it makes them look at you in a different kind of way and yeah I think one of the issues is is that parents themselves yeah. are tempted to also get themselves involved okay I, I find a lot of moms join their daughters on the, in their TikTok videos because they're like, you know what? If you can't beat them, join yeah, them. Join them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or they have their own accounts where they're dancing suggestively moms on yeah. TikTok. Yeah. So when a child sees their mom doing this in public, of course they're going to want to do it themselves. Um, 
There and again, you know, what, what you or I would call suggestive dancing, someone else might just call, you know, regular shimmying, you know, that's just normal dancing. So right. it's, you know, it, it, a lot of this is very culturally subjective. And, um, you know, I certainly am not in a position to judge other families' values. And I think that every family, every parent, you know, set has to establish their own values and boundaries and parameters. And then there are also like hard limits and soft limits. You know, there are things that, you know, so for one family relationship, you know, mom-daughter relationship, let's say, because you use that example, um, the idea of a mom getting involved and doing this with her child might be a really good alternative to a kid sneaking around and doing it with her friends. Exactly. Because at least this way, like any potential predators, because that's become a big issue with children and social media, will see like, oh, this kid is connected with her mom on social media. She's not a good target for me. Um, right. You know, whereas in another, like I know in, in, in like whatever, in the greater community where I live in, somebody was telling me that like a whole bunch of kids from a certain grade just got like suspended for having TikTok. I don't know, whatever. But like, you know, I'm not sure that that's the you know way to handle right. this. Either. Like, you right. know, I think we need to like talk to people and educate families and work with children where they're at. Um, you know, so I, I'm very always I'm always very reluctant to give sort of a pat answer of like here's what parents need to do. First of all, I'm not like the expert. You know, there's no shulchan aruch, there's no code of objective law that tells us exactly how to parent our children because they think that God really like trusts us to a certain extent to like use our judgment to establish relationships. And so sort of like, like parenting is more of an art than a science. You know, there are certain things that are, you know, generally not ever going to be good for kids and, and vice versa, things that are, you know, pretty, tend to be pretty good for kids most of the time. But, but, you know, the way we apply and adapt to different situations will really will rely on the tapestry of the relationship that we cultivate based on, you know, millions of interactions, little interactions over the course of their lifetime. So it's not so much about whether the kids get the app or don't get the app. Um, you know, it, it's more about how we educate, how we engage with them, um, what's going on in their general peer culture, and how we're teaching them in general uh, to, to interact with other people, with people they do know people, they don't know how to present their bodies in public, you know, the same way, you know, how I might, you know, encourage my children to dress might be a little bit different from how you encourage your children to dress, but it's based on thought out values and communication, and also taking into consideration the needs and feelings um, and, uh, and, and variables of each child, you know, in his or her, uh, you know, peer culture. Wow, that, that really gave me a lot to think about, because it's also showing that, like, if we just have, no, you can't be on this app, it's disgusting, yeah. Then it's, you're kind of disseminating the same message that maybe you got when you were younger and like, no, you can't watch this. This is not good. The fear mongering. Yeah. The avoidance. Right. right. And, that's and probably we, we want to acknowledge. Yeah. And we also want to acknowledge like that we get why that's fun. Like, like we understand, like it is fun to meet new people. It is fun to feel pretty and cute and even sexy. Like we want our children. Oh, to I was tempted on it too. I was like looking at all He's like, Karen, you know, you're like, in your 30s, right? I'm like, I know, but this is so much fun. So and I'm like, right. <laughs> I can't stop watching these videos. Yeah, we don't want to be like old, like out of touch buddy daddies. Like we want to be uh, like relatable to our children. And we want to see, we want them to be able to see that we're also comfortable with our own femininity or masculinity as the case may be. Um, and that we understand and relate to the notion of like, it does feel nice to be seen and be held and to dance and to sing and to party. Like there is, there's like really room for all of that in a wholesome, holy, beautiful life. It's right. just a question of when and where and with whom, and of course, safety and propriety. And, and, you know, a lot of those parameters are going to, you know, be really uh, fertile ground for important conversations with children. And, you know, again, vary by community and family. Wow. Thank you. Cause you know, right now TikTok is the Big new deal that everyone's going on. And I think what you said about it was perfect. Beautiful. Thanks. It's the trending parental dilemma. <laughs> There'll be something new in a few months, but you oh, know, that's, yeah, yeah. But it's all the same dynamic. It's like the wanting to give our children the tools to make good choices, you know, whatever that looks like for them, but like to live within values that are thought out and not just like doing what the world expects of them, not objectifying themselves, not, you know. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Love that. Okay. So I'm just going to take a little different turn. Sure. This is a question I've been wanting to ask you for a while, and I find this to be a problem mostly within like the religious communities. Um, I'm going to read it out because I want to make sure I say everything. Okay. So how does religion play a role affecting sexual intimacy? So according to certain mystical teachings, Shmirata Brit, which is spilling, not spilling seed, not wasting um, seed is considered to be the most harmful sin. 
and Kabbalah puts major focus on sexuality, original sin, and sexual imagery as a metaphor for the divine. So, for instance, in some circles, a bride and groom are taught that they must only think about the name of God during intimacy. This is a nice idea, but it's not exactly arousing. So, naturally, people can't live up to this, and that can lead to guilt, shame, suppression, and self-loathing. I'm asking you, Elisheva, in what way can Judaism be a source of inspiration for greater intimacy? And to what extent should couples lean on outside sources, outside of Judaism, to spice things up? I know, yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot, but let's, let's talk about our, my first question. It's in what ways can Judaism be a source of inspiration inspiring greater intimacy as opposed to the other. If wow. you comment on what I spoke about regarding Kabbalah and like religion as a source of like negativity in the bedroom. Oh my gosh, how many days do we have to have this conversation? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I just have to ask this question. It's so, there, there are so many layers to everything yeah. that you just said and it's so, so, so important. And I just, I think like whatever, I'm gonna have to like do some more writing about this because it's just, it's so important. Okay, well, I, I, just because you're quoting Jewish sources, I'm going to come back to you with Jewish sources. The Talmud says that the Torah could be a drug of life or a drug of death, right? An elixir of life or an elixir of death. And what that is often interpreted to mean is that because of the prolific nature of, of Judaic literature, right? There are so many, you know, thousands of pages and tractates of scripture, of Tanakh, of Medrash, of Gemara, of Mishnah, of, you know, and then Rishonim, like there's just so much, like they call it the yam, like it's a sea of, of, of literature. So almost anyone with an agenda can go in and find something that's gonna bolster their agenda. And so I, I think like, you know, if you're, let's say, um, if you wanna talk about any, any let's say disparity, like uh, opposite values, you can come up with sources to back up one or to back up the other because it says that the words of Torah are like if you take a rock and smash it into lots of pieces, that it all comes from the same rock. So words of Torah, there are 70 facets to them and there are so many different perspectives. And I think that one, uh, one idea that really seems to resonate throughout most of the literature having to do with husband-wife relationships is that God puts a very high premium on what we call shalom bayit, which means the, uh, you know, the wholeness or the peace in the home between the spouses. To the point that with regard to the Isha Sota, the woman who is suspected of adultery, it says that, that there's a, a, a written, God's holy name is written on a paper and it's erased, which you're not really supposed to erase God's written name, but God says, I'd rather erase my own name in order to bring peace between a husband and a wife. Uh, and so... There are a lot of variables that come into play, and this is why it's really so important. People sometimes just like grab little like nuggets of, of knowledge or sources that they know, but they don't apply it in the right context, and it can be really dangerous. And so there's this like, like there's a lot of OCD, um, hyper-religiosity, over-scrupulosity, where people are um, misapplying or over-applying religion in really unhealthy ways. And there are a lot of teachers and educators and rabbis who have made themselves knowledgeable to try to help people dial back from that and sort of say, listen, God wants you to be healthy. God and Torah want you to have a beautiful, loving, passionate relationship. It says that all of the, all of the songs that are written in, in Tanakh, in, in, in the writings, are, are holy. But Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, is holy of holies, Kodesh Kedashim, right? And um, Shir Hashirim, if you read it, it's an erotic love song, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And so again, you know, someone who wants to come with like really um, austere, abstinence, harsh language against anything that's pleasurable will probably be able to find little snippets of quotes in throughout the Talmud to back them up, right? But, um, you know, and I don't even want to get so much into the idea of spilling seed because I just, uh, parenthetically, what I would say, it's a, yeah, that deserves its own talk. But what I would say about that is that, um, it is a super, super common struggle to the point that someone who never struggles with spilling seed probably has a, another issue, like a biological or psychological issue. Yeah. So it's almost like the equivalent. I sometimes tell people this. Could you imagine if we applied the same level of stringency to say, listen, gossip is considered a very serious sin too, right? Speaking negatively about other people. Could you imagine if we told children, listen, children, gossiping is awful. We don't want to ever catch you slandering anyone else. So no one's allowed to talk right? Unless you like get explicit permission, right? Like there are only certain parameters in which you're allowed to talk, but everyone has to shut up because we don't want you to gossip. 
right? It would be sort of the equivalent to the way we're straightjacketing people's eyes and thoughts um, in certain extreme uh, community uh, norms so that they can avoid uh, any kinds of thoughts or stimulation. It's not healthy. It's not realistic. I don't think it's what the Torah or God ever intended. Um, there are very clear um, halachic parameters that are discussed in the Shulchan Aruch. And, you know, we struggle with that because, again, like society has changed so dramatically in the last couple hundred years that things that the whole world thought of as common decency until the last hundred years or so now are like, no, they're not considered common decency. So we need to like sort of like understand where we need to draw those lines. But that having been said, I think there's a there's a really nice book. It's called Marital Intimacy by Avraham Peretz Friedman. I think you heard of that one. I think he recently redid it under the title Table for Two, Setting a Table for Two. I, forgive me, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but there are some really nice sex positive books and articles out there. Um, I know whyutorah.org is a fantastic resource. They have a whole sexuality department a link in there, you know, if you want Shirim. So while I personally, as a professional, you know, I'm educated beyond just the realm of Torah, although it says all the wisdom in the world is in Torah, but at the same time, as professionals, we need to be licensed and credentialed and educated by uh, other objective sources as well. Um, but I think that a person who does prefer to uh, stay within the parameters of Judaic literature can find a wealth and a trove of, of uh, very sex positive messages that will uh, promote the idea and the value of creating passion and pleasure and love and joy and connection and a certain amount of experimentation between spouses. The Talmud is not prudish. You know, if you read the Gemara, Yevamos, and Nida, and uh, also, like a lot of the Nashim, you know, a lot of the the tractates that have to deal with marriage, like they really don't mince words. It's very, very explicit. So there's a lot of really uh, um, revealing and um, um, informative, instructive language in Torah sources that can allow people the vocabulary and the context to have useful and productive conversations about, you know, what can what can make a marriage fantastic. Wow. So based on what you're saying, um, I, I don't think couples even need to go outside of Judaism in order to spice things up in the bedroom because everything's in our Judaism and our religion and the sources in Tanakh. Um, but if a couple wants to explore outside, would that be okay for them? I mean, to get sources from the secular world, do they have things like knowledge and information that could be helpful for them? Yeah, I think so. Look, you know, another thing that it says in the Torah is which means that one is allowed to believe in the wisdom of, uh, of Gentile knowledge. And so even though, you know, if you read through the entire Tanakh and Talmud and Medrash and body of, you know, post-Talmudic literature, you could find, you know, a tremendous amount of information. It hasn't really been necessarily, at least as far as I know, it hasn't necessarily been um, uh, collected and edited and annotated in a way that's necessarily digestible for the contemporary mind or, or uh, couple. I, I guess, as far as I know, there may, there might be a, you know wonderful resources out there. But you know, part of the reason that I started writing and and uh, you know teaching about this is because I've not found readily available religious sources on it. You know, so when I work with clients, I have what I call my libido reading list, where I have like lots of different titles that I choose from to recommend, um, and most of them are, are not Jewish books. Um, but, you know, I try to keep them refined. I try to keep them respectful and values-based based on the client's needs, again, because everybody's needs are a little bit different based on their religious affiliations and sensitivities um, and personal needs, psychological and couple needs. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I definitely do avail myself of a lot of the contemporary literature because it does sort of like stream it in a way that's more like the language and the examples and the fantasy and the pleasuring that's like kind of more applicable to like each generation, uh, you know, and what's normative and the, you know, the thoughts and the desires and the fantasies of what people tend to have. Um, but I, I think, look, you know, if a couple wants to just spice things up, they should start by talking about stuff. They can certainly, you know, look at different resources. They can work with a professional. Um, but there's a lot that, you know, a lot that people can do. And, you know, the, the, the idea and the assumption that anything outside like the regular vanilla realm of like a few, like a simple, simple basic repertoire is going to be like, dirty or inappropriate or whatever is such a shame because that's, I don't think that's the way it was meant to be. And the Talmud actually does talk about that, that like one opinion is like anything a husband and wife want to do with each other at a time that they're permitted to each other for the most part tends to be permitted. You know, there's other opinions that limit certain things, but you know, yeah. it's certainly up for conversation. It's certainly something that's always worth exploring and discussing with trusted either professionals and or halachic authorities. 
um, because the, I think my humble opinion is that God and the Torah want couples to enjoy lasting love and pleasure with one another. I think it's great for individuals. It's great for serving God. It's great for children. It, the love trickles down into the home. Um, wow. This is beautiful. This is so beautiful. I, I also appreciate the fact that you're saying that every person has different needs, um, a different upbringing, and there's cultural sensitivities, religious, different religious affiliations. And I feel like your course can be taught in a way where like everyone can apply it to their lives individually. Like it's not like a one size fits all. Um, what, what, whatever information they get from your course can be applied to however their life is nowadays, right? Can you explain that? That's, that's that? the hope. That's yeah. the hope. You know, the hope of a good teacher, of a good educator, is someone who doesn't just teach like facts, you know, like, you know, chasma, like information, data, but teaches bina, understanding. And when people learn to use their minds in a broader, more competent, more open-ended sort of way, um, you know, they can apply the ideas and the constructs and the theories and the possibilities to situations beyond the scope of, you know, I can't possibly cover every scenario, conversation, feeling, thought, fantasy that's going to come up. What I can do is teach and offer like a modality of how to engage with oneself, which, with one's thoughts, with one's feelings, and how to give over um, a, a positive, gentle, accepting way of engaging with that, uh, with one's children as well. And then, you know, of course we have like societal, moral, ethical, and religious guidelines to help keep us on sort of a, a straight and, but preferably a little less narrow. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Oh, wow, I, like, I can't wait to keep going with this course because I'm really not only gaining information and just like, oh, this is how you have to do things. I'm, I'm really learning and grasping the information, sitting with it, thinking about how I can apply this to my children, to my life, and everyone, can do it in a different way according to their lifestyle and according to their upbringing and everything that goes. That's what's so amazing about this course. Elishaba, can you tell the audience where else people can find you, how they can get on the course, what else you offer? Let's sure. Go. So much. Yeah, no, I'm so happy you're enjoying it. Um, but before I get to that, I really just because, you know, I, I, I have this course and I'm so happy that you're talking about it and I'm really, I believe in it. But at the same time, like, I know that it's not necessarily going to be for everyone. And I do want to mention like a shout out. I don't even know these women, but they have two books that I've been lending out to clients for years and recommending to clients for years. One of them is Yocheved Dibao wrote a book talking about, talking about intimacy and sexuality. And Sarah Diamonds, D-I-A-M-E-N-T. Uh, yeah, I think I probably told you about it. I, I, I recommend these books all the time. They're inexpensive. They're on Amazon. They are Jewish uh, perspectives, very well-researched, both clinically and Jewishly. Um, and, they're, and, and they're really, really nice. That's what really got me started in doing this research. My course has a little bit of a different angle and some other information. But if somebody wants to just sort of get started educating themselves and they're not ready to like spend the time or money on a full digital course, I totally endorse and recommend books like that. There's a ton of stuff that's available, not from a religious perspective, but a lot of people call me wanting the religious. So I, I really just want to let people know that even though, of course, I, I hope, you know, and I'm grateful for all the lots of people who've been taking the course and I hope more will join. But even if you're not going to, please just make yourselves knowledgeable in other ways. So I really just wanted to let people know about those resources. What's um, the name of the book by Sarah Diamant? Sarah yeah, Diamond. you know what? If you search Sarah Diamond in, um, in Amazon, her, her book will come up. I don't think she wrote too many other things. So it's okay. talk talking to kids about intimacy or talking to children about intimacy. So the, the titles are very similar. Okay, great. Okay. So those are, those are two really nice resources. I don't want anyone to walk away thinking this was just like an hour long plug for my course. No, there's yeah. a lot of information there and also like other resources. Okay. Um, now, okay. So where is my other stuff? So the course itself is if you go on elliechevelist.com, there's a link there as well as if you find me on Instagram, which is my name. Um, it's in the, the link is in the bio. Um, I feel like it's probably other places too. It's on Thinkific, but yeah. those are, yeah, those are, those are two places you can find it. Okay, um, great. And then, um, and in general, I have uh, other writings on elishevelis.com and on nefesh.org. Nefesh.org, um, guys. Check yeah. it out. Really if you go on nefesh.org, you click on the blogs. So usually my blog is one of the first ones that they show, just there's not so many, but so you'll see that. And then, um, what else? And then, yeah, I guess anyone who wants to reach out, I also, I'm so grateful for all the people who are giving me feedback about my articles, about the blogs, about the course, because, you know, I learned so much 
from what people tell me and their own experiences. You know, we've all only had our own experience, but, you know, working with other people and hearing from other people really enriches my knowledge and my sensitivity and my understanding. So when people read the articles or take the, oh, important thing about the course is you don't have to sign up right away. Like if you click on it, and you're not sure if you want to enroll in the course, you can actually enroll in the free sample content, watch a couple of lessons first and see if you like the tone and the style, if it's going to work for you before actually committing to the course. It's now at the introductory uh, level and price. It's going to be, I'm adding more lessons and the price will go up for pe people who already bought it now are like, that's it. They just pay once and that's it. Um, but, but uh, you know, it will go up eventually. So um, anyway, so, so nice talking to you, Karen. Really such so a pleasure. So nice talking to you, Ali Shaba. Thank you for giving the time, your knowledge, your expertise for this interview. I learned so, so much from you. And I, one thing I can take away from this is that nothing is black and white. Um, in our day and age, when we want to control everything and we want to know everything, like exactly how we have to do things, one of the things I learned from you in this interview is that, no, like, there's not just one way of doing things. Everything has nuance and you have to apply it to your life like day by day. And it's an ongoing conversation. That's another message that I really learned from this interview. It's not just like, okay, I'm just going to have this one conversation with my kids. I'm just going to learn it. Crash course. That's it. No, you're teaching us that learning about sexuality and giving sex education to our kids, it's a life long work like this is something that you have to constantly be speaking about with yourselves with your inner child with your kids so thank you again you have been an incredible resource for me and many married women and college teachers and to the world at large so thank you again and i'm looking forward to finishing your course really okay. excited about it thank my you. pleasure thank you so much of course thank you take care Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. That would mean so much to me. And I would love to hear your feedback about the show and how I can make this better for you. And if you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at Soul Train KK. Have a great day.